Welcome to the Scoop and School podcast. Do they worry you at all? Are you worried? Ridiculous, Morgan. My boy. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Your host, Stephen Kahn. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to week nine of the college football season. Week eight, it looked for a little bit early on like it might break towards sort of some of that wild wackiness that we've been waiting for. A lot of W's there. Um, and we did get we did get some, uh, you know, surprising outcomes. Uh, certainly, the folks in, in Madison are, are not too pleased about what went on in Champaign. But ultimately, we're, we're still waiting on that ultimate craziness. Maybe this will be the kind of season where we just get a few, you know, a few little uh, chinks in the armor here and there on these on these big time teams. And as the season progressive, all of a sudden, uh, you know, it'll add up to one uh, massive bloodbath of a week. But uh, looking back at week eight, I'm just going to run down in no particular order here. Uh, but I'll start with Michigan-Penn State because that is probably the game. I watched every play of that game, so it's, it's the one that I was most focused on. Uh, I was just off with my prognostication by one point. I said it would be Penn State 27, Michigan 21. Final score was 28-21. Penn State took a 21-0 lead early in this game. Uh, You know, K.J. Hamler ends up matched up against some Michigan safeties, and that is just not, uh, that is not a matchup that's going to work for any defense. I don't care who your safeties are. Um, And that was really... Uh, two of those touchdowns, those were the, really the difference in the game. Uh, of course, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you're aware of what happened. Michigan did come back, uh, had a chance to tie it up. Ronnie Bell uh, drops a, a what would be, a theory, you know, pending the extra point, a game-tying touchdown pass in the end zone. Um, you know, this was kind of... And, and I'll talk about this a lot more uh, when I talk about the Michigan-Notre Dame game coming up this week. But Shea Patterson looked good in this game. Uh, I think he was let down by his receivers for the most part. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about Ronnie Bell uh, dropping that pass. He, he had a pretty nice game along with Nico Collins. But uh, Tariq Black and Donovan Peoples-Jones, you know, stop me if you've heard me say this before. But they continue to just not really produce. Um, and I thought Jim Harbaugh really hamstrung his team, calling a conservative game, uh, especially in in the first half. Um, And actually, James Franklin, I think, let him into it uh, by calling an ultra-conservative game uh, down the stretch in the fourth quarter. So uh, definitely some, you know, maybe, I don't know, are we at the point in Michigan season where there are moral victories? Um, Because, you know, they they seem to be thinking positively coming out of this game, but uh, certainly a tough loss. For Notre Dame, uh, I'm sorry for Michigan. Uh oh, hope that's not uh, hope that's not foreshadowing. Uh, tough loss for Michigan, and uh, and I'll I'll come back around uh, to my thoughts about the Wolverines and the Fighting Irish. Um, probably going to be an extended talk about that game coming up in the second half of the show. Um, Tennessee and Alabama, that looked for a second like you know just maybe we could have craziness there. Unfortunately, Tua Tagovailoa sprains his ankle. He had surgery within 12 hours of, of that injury, and they hope to have him back for that LSU game after uh, after an easy game coming up this week and then an idle week. Um, Tennessee was able to cut it close. Uh, they, they got it down to the one-yard line. The score was 28-13 in the fourth quarter. Could have punched it in to make it a one-score game. 
But of course, being Tennessee, they fumbled. Alabama gets a 100-yard scoop and score. And at that point, the game was over. Alabama had a chance to show off their fancy new LED lights. You know, we at this point, we I think it's just kind of taking bets on when all of our favorite teams get those new LED lights in their stadium. I'm thinking for Notre Dame, it's going to be at least 15 or 20 years based on the way uh, stadium renovations typically go uh, with the Irish trying to keep up with the times. Uh LSU and Mississippi State, I, I should say I did go 0-3 in my picks this week. I'll be offering a money-back guarantee of sorts uh, with my picks this week. You'll have to stay tuned uh, to, towards the end of the show to, to hear the details on that. Uh, I did have Mississippi State getting, uh, I don't know, 18 and a half, 19, something like that. Um, and they, they held LSU's offense particularly in, uh, in check for much of the first half, but then LSU just came out, dominated the game. Joe Burrow showed his ass to the entire stadium and was still able to throw for 327 yards and four touchdowns. They keep humming right along, and with the injury to Tua, Joe Burrow might be uh, putting himself in in great position for the Heisman Trophy. I still think uh, you know the winner that that Alabama LSU game likely an elimination of sorts for the Heisman Trophy, uh, but we'll have to see what happens. Of course, not ruling out guys like Jalen Hurts or Justin Fields. Uh, Clemson played Louisville. Uh, I mentioned this could be one of the tougher tests remaining for Clemson. It was ugly, uh, especially in the first half, at least until Trevor Lawrence threw up a touchdown pass right uh, right at the end of the first half to take a 14-point lead into the locker room. But despite being ugly, this, this wasn't a close game. And a couple weeks ago, uh, I was talking uh, with with my guest Jessica about whether or not this Clemson team was looking a lot like 2014 Florida State, and she refuted that um, a little bit. And looking at the numbers, I think she was right. I mean, despite Clemson not looking like a good team right now, their average margin of victory is 28 points through through the seven games so far. When you go back to the 2014 season, that Florida State team's average margin of victory was just 12 points. So despite, you know, Trevor Lawrence and, and all his interceptions and and all, all the sloppiness for Clemson, when all of a sudden done, they're still killing teams, and I think that's a testament to just how talented they really are. So while they're going to need to clean it up, and, and there's really going to be no way for them to be tested before the playoffs, so... We're not going to know what what they are heading into a potential playoff game. Uh, I still think there's there's less cause for concern than perhaps uh, some are some are suggesting, and and from what we've seen in the past, uh, the biggest shocker of the weekend. I alluded to it earlier. Champagne's popping. Illinois knocks off Wisconsin. Uh, I was able to watch like the last eight minutes of this game. This wasn't one where Illinois was up the whole way. It seemed like Wisconsin was just kind of in control. They're up like 21-7, something like that. Um, and they were actually, they were up by 11 with the ball at like the Illinois 30. This is, you know, eight minutes to go, something like that. And Jonathan Taylor fumbles. Now, fumbling was a bit uh, of a problem for him early in, earlier in his career. Hasn't been so much this season, but... As much as I talk about how great Jonathan Taylor is, fumbling has been a little bit of an issue for him. Uh, he, he fumbles away, and, and Illinois quickly 
scores a touchdown, then gets an interception, and then drives for the game-winning field goal as time expires. I mean, this was a strange game when you look at some of the numbers. Wisconsin had 2-1 to one in terms of time of possession. Um, they, they dominated yardage. They, they dominated first downs. This was a situation where Wisconsin was very much in control and then just kind of imploded in an eight-minute span. And that can happen uh, in college football, and it's why, you know, when, you, when, when you're wondering where these crazy upsets come from, it can just be a bad eight-minute stretch that can completely change a season. So when we're looking ahead to, oh, I don't see when Oklahoma's going to lose, or oh, I don't see when Ohio State could possibly lose, all it takes is a bad eight-minute stretch for, for things to go wrong. This was against Illinois. So if you're, if you're playing against a, a team, you know, theoretically better than that, uh, it's certainly possible. Uh, but but great for Illinois and uh, and great for that kick. It's always fun when you know someone who's probably uh, not a, had a lot of huge moments, uh, such as the Illinois kicker in this case, can can really be the hero for a game. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure he's he's enjoying life uh, as as a big man on campus this week. Um, Florida and South Carolina. Florida was down in this game early. And it's really interesting just how perception works out. South Carolina knocks off Georgia uh, in, you know, takes multiple overtimes in a game where Georgia turned the ball over four times uh, and took the ball away from South Carolina zero times. And, you know, it's doomsday for Georgia. But Florida, in, in a game where, you know, things really didn't go South Carolina's way, a lot of, a lot of potentially bad calls uh, by the officiating crew, Will Muschamp, head coach of South Carolina, was very upset about that. You know, in in a game where they don't catch any breaks, South Carolina, and, and they play Florida really tight, all of a sudden it's a good win for Florida. So just kind of an interesting situation there in terms of it's all about perception. I understand Florida was on the road in this one, but still, South Carolina looked looked like Florida's equal in this game, and, uh, and it will be interesting to see how Florida handles... The rest of uh, the rest of their SEC schedule. I mean, just a, a couple weeks in advance lean, but I think Georgia. I think I think Florida is going to be a popular pick in the cocktail party, and I think Georgia is going to handle them just fine. Um, and another one of my uh, my lost picks from the weekend. I did have uh, Washington. I thought they were going to win outright at home against Oregon. They had the lead uh, in the third quarter. But uh, Justin Herbert uh, led two touchdown drives, one right at the end of the third quarter, another in the fourth. Uh, Washington scored zero points in the fourth quarter and had a big kick return early in the game taken away. Uh, They they had a penalty called for, I don't know what the actual wording was, but it was essentially a penalty for deceit. They had one of their players lie down in the end zone, uh, you know, kind of blending in. And he didn't, when the ball was kicked off, he was actually standing out in the field of play. Uh, right when it was kicked off, kind of ran back, laid down in the end zone, and then took a lateral uh, from his teammate. But apparently, you're no longer allowed to trick the other team by uh, trying to blend into your own end zone. Which I, you know, coming as someone who, when when I played, I was not a, I didn't pitch a ton when I played baseball, but I pitched enough, and I don't think there was an inning that I pitched where if I didn't let a runner on base. I, I tried some kind of hidden ball trick. If if you got to first base on me, I was going to try, a, I was going to call over the first baseman, I was going to hand him the ball, I was going to go, I was going to straddle the mound, I was not going to toe the rubber, 
and I was going to try and get you on a hidden ball trick. I would do pickoffs to third. I'm a big fan of deceit when it comes to sports. And why are we why are we legislating the trickery out of the game? I don't like it at all. This isn't even there are no sirens in the background. This is not a hot take alert. I just don't like the way that we're taking trickiness out of sports. You have to have your head on swivel out there. If you get tricked, that's on you. Halloween's coming up, baby. Trick or treat. Trick. I'll take. Anyway, uh, lost in all of what I nonsense I just said. Oregon did win that game. Uh, remain. They've effectively wrapped up the entire Pac-12 North, and uh, they still got it. They still got a chance. They still got a chance uh, for the playoff. Um, you know, their only loss being to Auburn. We'll have to see uh, how the rest of the Pac-12 looks at the end of the year to see what kind of resume they have. In terms of who they'll likely be facing in an eventual Pac-12 championship, uh, Utah went a long way towards helping themselves there, knocking off Arizona State. They really dominated the game. Um, and right now, it, it's going to be looks like it's going to be Utah and USC uh, battling out in the Pac-12 South. USC does hold the tiebreaker with the win over Utah, but uh, in in USC's big time, I don't know, forty one to seventeen, forty one seven, they crushed Arizona. Um, they did uh, sustain significant injuries in that game, so could be tough for USC to uh, to maintain, uh, you know, run the table, try to try to win out from here. If they do, they'll be the Pac twelve South representative. But uh, with some of those injuries, I think that might be unlikely, and Utah might be the Pac-12 South favorite at this time. Um, I should mention we are now down to 10 undefeated teams left in FBS college football. Uh, Part of the reason for that, BYU knocked off Boise State late on Saturday night. This probably opens up a New Year's Six spot for now. Boise could certainly work their way back into it as the Group of Five representative, but uh, certainly opens the door for an AAC team. You could look at uh, SMU. Memphis is a possibility. There are going to be some teams vying for that spot now that Boise has been knocked out for now. Uh, I should note that Ryan Leaf was the color commentator on this game. And it's really, I mean, unfortunately for him, although not, you know, not due to anything other than his own making, he's kind of remembered as the hothead who, you know, screamed at the reporter in the locker room and was a total bust, same draft class as Peyton Manning. He's really, and there have been plenty of articles kind of written about his return to football and his time away from the game. Uh, He's remarkably, like, calm as an announcer. He reminded me, listening to him, he sounds like Will Ferrell in the scene at the end of Step Brothers at the Catalina Wine Mixer where... He's talking about, you know, just taking baby aspirin, can't be too careful, uh, you know, just working on himself and how, I don't, whatever job, how they give you the tools to be your own boss. Uh, so if you get a chance to watch a, a Ryan Leaf commentated game, I highly encourage you to do it. He just seems like, he's so relaxing to listen to and, uh, and it really, I was like, oh, who is this guy? And then the little thing popped up in the corner that showed the three commentators and it said Ryan Leaf and... Anyway, got a good chuckle out of that. Those are the kind of things, those are the kind of nuggets I want to bring you here at the Scoop and Score podcast. Um, almost a crazy outcome from the weekend, but not quite. Texas was able to outlast Kansas 50-48, to winning on the game-winning field goal from Dicker the kicker. Uh, they also blocked a 
a PAT and returned it for two points. So without that, that game is heading into overtime. Um, you know, just tough, tough, tough for Kansas. You feel for him. That would have been such a huge win, and it would have given all of us college football fans so much material to laugh at Texas. Um, but unfortunately, the Jayhawks were not able to finish the job in that one. But still, good good for Les Miles for at least making Kansas competitive. Uh, still, still just at two wins. A lot of listeners out there anxiously hoping they'll get a third win on the season. We're going to have to wait another week for a chance at that. But uh, Les Miles certainly has things moving in the right direction in Lawrence. Uh, my, my third and final loss of the week uh, came in the Baylor-Oklahoma State game. Oklahoma State was up 27-24 in the fourth quarter. I felt okay. I just needed them to kick a field goal for the cover. Uh, Baylor went on to score 21 unanswered, including a scoop and score. And that was all she wrote. Baylor, this Baylor team is, like, pretty good. Um, they, they really get after it on defense. Just overall a, a well-balanced team. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the Pac-12 season goes for them. Of course, they do have uh, they have both Texas and Oklahoma still to come. Uh, I mentioned uh, teams vying for that coveted Group of Five New Year's Six spot. I mean, if you were just someone who knew nothing about college football, listening to me to say things like Group of Five New Year's Six spot, what on earth? would that even mean? But fortunately, you're all well-informed listeners. So SMU knocked out Temple 45-21. to um, This is interesting for Notre Dame fans out there because there's a pretty decent chance Notre Dame could end up in the Cotton Bowl uh, facing the Group of Five representative. And that team could be SMU. I'm not sure Notre Dame wants to be playing SMU in Dallas um, and, and Notre Dame fans might have some additional nightmares. Quarterback of SMU is none other than Shane Bouchelle, who was the quarterback at Texas in 2016. So just in case you needed, you know, a full circle of suck, uh, it is very possible, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Notre Dame could be playing in a Cotton Bowl against an SMU team essentially playing at home uh, and a quarterback that was at the helm of just one of the worst losses in recent Notre Dame history. So you might want to keep an eye on the Mustangs in that one. If it's me and we're going to the Cotton Bowl, I'd much rather play a Boise State or Memphis or someone like that. Uh, Last game from the weekend that I'll touch on, Virginia Tech and North Carolina. This game went to six overtimes. It is the first game that has gone into the new overtime rule where you just start trading two-point conversions. Uh, after, well, now i got to live Google exactly which number it is because um, I don't is – it, is it after the third overtime you start uh, – let's see. Both teams miss – okay. It is the – well, I'm not going to cut any of this out. You're going to learn – just how long this... Oh, you know, I have it here in my notes. I'm an idiot. Um, after the one, two, three, four... After four overtimes, in the fifth overtime, uh, it goes into just trading two-point conversion attempts. Um, in this game, both teams, after going in overtime, both teams kick field goals, both teams 
scored touchdowns. Then we had four consecutive missed field goals in overtime, three and four. Uh, and then both teams missed their two-point conversion attempt in the fifth overtime before Virginia Tech answered North Carolina's miss with a conversion in the sixth overtime. I apologize for wasting your time trying to figure some of that out. I'm not going to cut any of that out. This is a raw. This is a raw podcast, and you're getting it firsthand here uh, as I present it to you. That's about it from the weekend. Um, all in all, pretty, pretty exciting stuff. With where we stand right now, going to my top six, I'm putting number one LSU, number two Ohio State, number three Oklahoma, number four Penn State number five, Alabama, and number six, Clemson. That's a that's a playoff top four right now without Alabama or Clemson. So uh, let's, let's see what changes here in coming weeks. I have a feeling with some of the picks that I'm going to give that, uh, that at least one of those teams is going to be bounced from the top six this coming week. That is what we call a little teaser as to what is coming. I should mention, of course, that this episode of the Scoop and Score podcast is sponsored by Rent Like a Champion. Uh, this week, I will not be using Rent Like a Champion because when I go out to Ann Arbor for the Notre Dame-Michigan game, I am fortunate enough to be staying at my brother and sister-in-law and niece and my two dog nephews' house. Um, so that's great. I don't need a house. But if you're not lucky like me and you don't have family at the, at the town you're going to, you should use rentlikeachampion.com. You don't want to stay in a hotel. You don't want to use Airbnb because sometimes I can't, I'm not sure, but I have to imagine someone's been murdered in, a, in an Airbnb. Um, so go to rentlikeachampion.com, use rentlikeachampion.com, type in promo code SCOOP so they know that I sent you, and you're going to have the best time. Um, it's just really good houses, great Great, everything about it. Good customer service. You're going to love it. Use rentlikeachampion.com. All right. On to week nine. I guess might as well just start off with Notre Dame and Michigan. I'll probably go for a little while on this. First and foremost, this is the last scheduled game in the series. Um, And I don't see an opportunity to get these two teams on each other's schedule in the near future. 2024, Notre Dame has a spot that's probably available for a Power 5 team. Um, They also have Texas A&M that year, so I think they could add one more. But Michigan has Texas, and I I would doubt that they would put two of their three non-conference games uh, against Power 5 teams. So 2024, probably out. And then uh, 2029, Notre Dame has a couple spots open, but Alabama is certainly is currently on the schedule, so I don't know for sure that that would happen, although Notre Dame did uh, did have Georgia and Michigan this season, so 2029 remains a possibility. And then 2030, that's when the schedule is like completely open right now for Notre Dame. So if you're a huge fan of the Notre Dame-Michigan rivalry, I think you're circling 2029 or 2030 as the next possible year that these two teams could play each other. So we should enjoy the game we have this week coming up at 7.30 in the Big House. Number 18, Notre Dame visits number 19, Michigan. What should we think about this game? 
uh, where does each team stand right now in their season? Michigan is almost assuredly out of the Big Ten race. Uh, if you want to look at scenarios that Michigan could conceivably end up in a tie for the Big Ten East and uh, and go on to potentially win the Big Ten, you can check out MLive uh, writer named Andrew Kahn did a, a little breakdown of, of various tiebreaker scenarios there. But let's be realistic. Michigan's not winning the Big Ten East. They're not tying for the Big Ten East. It's not going to happen. So now Michigan season, in my view, and I'm not a Michigan fan, but from the outside, it looks to me like Michigan season is really just three individual games. They're three biggest rivals. Uh, you've got Notre Dame this week, you've got Michigan State in a few weeks, and you've got Ohio State at the end of the season. All at home, each one of those games matters individually to Michigan. Um, you know, at this point, they have two losses. Um, regardless of what happens with the rest of their season, each of those wins makes their season incrementally better. If they lose all three, season's a disaster. If they only beat Notre Dame, season's still kind of a disaster, but hey, they beat Notre Dame. If they win two of those three games, but still don't go to the Big Ten Championship, okay, hey, we knocked off Notre Dame and Michigan State. And if they win all three, or if they just beat Ohio State, all of that matters. Each of these games matters individually, and that's where we're at with Michigan. With Notre Dame, it's interesting, and it's kind of a testament to the beauty of college football, and it's actually similar to the Michigan situation. Of course, Notre Dame could lose any number of games remaining on their schedule, but I think most people would agree that 11-1 and 10-2 and are the most likely scenarios right now. Given the current college football landscape and, and the rest of the teams out there right now, I don't see a whole lot of chance that Notre Dame makes the playoff at 11-1. and so therefore, just based on based on the playoff or bust mentality, Notre Dame gets in, into a New Year's Six Bowl at 10-2, and, and they probably are still in a regular non-playoff New Year's Six Bowl at 11-1. So theoretically, losing this game doesn't mean a lot to the outcome of Notre Dame's season. That being said, going to a New Year's Six Bowl in a season where you beat Michigan is a lot different than going to a New Year's Six Bowl in a season where you lost to Michigan. So it might not really impact the, the outcome of their season, but that's why I love college football. These individual games mean so much. Ask any Notre Dame fan, they could go on, win the Cotton Bowl, 10-2, won the Cotton Bowl, great. It would be a lot better to be 11-1, win the Cotton Bowl, and have a win against Michigan. We don't want to have the last laugh for, I just said, you know, if, if Michigan has the last laugh here for 10 years, that's not going to sit well with Notre Dame fans. The same way, on the flip side, it won't sit well with Michigan fans if Notre Dame comes into their building, wins the third consecutive game in this rivalry, and then we take at least probably a 10-year break. So that's what's at stake. Now let's talk about what to expect in the game itself. First and foremost, I want to talk about the perception of each team. For some Michigan and Notre Dame are, are pretty much exactly what I thought they were at the beginning of the season. Both teams may be a little bit worse. Um, I would say Michigan is worse in the sense that I thought their receiving unit was elite. And I thought that Donovan Peoples-Jones and Tariq Black were going to be the leaders and Nico Collins is really good. Uh, Ronnie Bell was not even really on my radar. Nico Collins is the only guy that really scares me. Uh, Ronnie Bell is is 
an impressive player as well. Like, I'm sure, I'm, I apologize in advance, Notre Dame fans, for when DPJ and, and Tariq Black go off on us. But when have those guys ever made a play? When have they ever done anything to help Shea Patterson, who was an absolute warrior in that game against Penn State and was getting no help from the guys that are supposed to be two of his leading receivers? But Nico Collins uh, certainly concerns me there, uh, and, and we'll get into individual matchups a little bit more in a little bit. But the thing with Michigan is they are, you know, I, I didn't understand why people thought their offensive line was going to be so good coming into the season. Uh, I didn't understand how anyone thought their defense would be as good as last year when they lost Winovich and, and Gary and Bush. It just didn't make sense. Uh, but they're still certainly a good team, and, and somehow the perception is completely flipped the other way. And I think just because expectations were too high to start the season, then all of a sudden they play this close game against Army and they look bad. And then they get blown out at Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden this became a, a team that was, you know, not, you know, they were they were looked at as being, you know, not even able to compete. And as we saw on Saturday night, that's just not true. This is still a good team. This is still, in my opinion, like, I don't know, what are they, they're ranked 19? That's about right. They might even be a little bit better than that. They might be like a top 14, 15 team. So this is still a really good team. I, a lot of my Notre Dame fan friends seem to be just kind of thinking, you know, over the last few weeks that this was just going to be a gimme game. I don't understand that thinking. And, and I... I have to imagine a lot of it just comes from because they were overhyped to start the season. Then the fall, when they lost a game to Wisconsin and had a close game to Army, the fall was a lot further than really deserved to be. Um, and then Notre Dame, on the flip side, I think they're also just a little bit worse than I expected. Uh, the offense isn't clicking quite in the same way that I expected. Now, granted... A lot of that is probably due to injuries. Uh, Notre Dame has not had a snap uh, of the football, or maybe one snap against USC, where Jafar Armstrong, uh, Cole Komet, and, and Michael Young were all healthy and on the field. I don't know if even they were all on the field together. This game against Michigan will be the first time that the offense is healthy uh, all season. So is that going to lead to uh, significant improvement on the offensive side of the ball? I don't know, probably not enough that the gap between where I thought Notre Dame's offense would be and where they have been uh, will be completely, uh, I don't think that gap will be bridged completely, but uh, certainly should be a better um, better team than we've seen so far. Um, and then looking at the, the Michigan defensive side of the ball, I, I apologize, I'm just kind of scatterbrained here going back and forth, but for Michigan on defense... Um, I think the injury to Josh Ross was was a helpful thing for that Michigan defense with Cam McGrone uh, emerging as a guy who's flying around on defense. Uh, Aiden Hutchinson on that defensive line is disruptive. I think those are guys uh, that can certainly cause some problems for Notre Dame in this one. Uh, just stream of consciousness, things I'm thinking about. Uh, I've, I've heard Big Ten refs are going to be... Um, the officials for this game. Michigan, no doubt about it, got a bad whistle against Penn State. Big 10 refs in those games, obviously, conference game. And Jim Harbaugh was not shy about letting the media and the refs know that he thought they got a raw deal on the whistle. I have to imagine that in a, in a home environment for Michigan, in a week where the Big 10 just got chewed out by Jim Harbaugh, 
that they, let's just say, I don't think they're going to get a bad whistle again. I don't, I, I am not someone who believes that the refs are ever actively working in anyone's favor. I think that that's crazy. I think that it would be almost difficult to truly act in favor of a team. I, I, again, I don't think these refs are betting on the game. It's not like a Tim Donahue situation. So I don't think that's the case. But just human nature, if you know that someone got screwed the week before and your bosses just had to deal with, with that person saying you did a bad job and you're now operating in an environment where, you know, it might be just easier to make calls for the home team, I just, I will leave it at that. I don't expect Michigan to get a bad whistle in this game. And I still have some scars from the 2009 game at Michigan, which was one of the most poorly officiated games I have ever seen. So that is a concern to me. Another concern to me, Sean Crawford, injured uh, against Virginia. Um, it was pretty miraculous to hear that he might be back for this game. If you, uh, if you hear that noise in the background, I apologize. There's some kind of construction going on outside my window. We're just going to battle through. Hopefully it's just a low hum for you guys. Um, Sean Crawford, it was amazing that he was going to be back. Sounds to me like, from what Brian Kelly has said, that he is not going to be playing uh, a full uh, collection of snaps in this game. If we see him in, in obvious passing downs, I think that will be helpful. But unfortunately, Tariq Bracey, maybe even Dante Vaughn, are going to be counted on big time against... Uh, these Michigan receivers, and even Troy Pride. I mean, from what we saw, uh, what we've seen from him all season, the secondary is a little bit concerning, uh, but I do like uh, Clark Lee's, you know, with Clark Lee, and, and this is a good uh, transition into the coordinators. Notre Dame had a week off to prepare for this game. Uh, Clark Lee is a very good defensive coordinator. If we're going Clark Lee, defensive coordinator for Notre Dame, Josh Gaddis, offensive coordinator for Michigan. I say advantage Clark Lee and Notre Dame. I think his game plan against USC, putting his second best cornerback on USC's best receiver and giving him safety help over the top makes a lot of sense. You then put your best corner on the second best wide receiver and you let them go one-on-one. -on -one. I think we'll see Nico Collins probably in a situation where there's safety help over the top quite a bit. I like that matchup for Notre Dame. Um... Don Brown, defensive coordinator for Michigan, versus uh, Chip Long, offensive coordinator for Notre Dame. This is, I think, an even matchup. Um, but here's, I think the book is out on Don Brown a little bit. Uh, they certainly got exposed against Ohio State. They were not good against Florida in the bowl game. Um, and, and Penn State showed a way to exploit Michigan in terms of getting, you know, they're going to play a lot of man. So if you get a receiver matched up on a safety... That's a chance for a big play. Unfortunately, Notre Dame doesn't really have a K.J. Hamler on the roster. I know people get excited about Braden Lindsey and, oh, can we put him out there for one, you know, one big go route and throw a bomb. There's a reason people in Notre Dame circles still call that type of play a Chris Brown type of play. And the reason is because the last time that actually happened in a big spot, was in 2012 when Chris Brown did that against Oklahoma. It hasn't really happened since. And every year they're like, oh, can we get name whatever young receiver with speed you want? Can we get him on the field for one deep pass? Yeah, sure, it's great in theory, but it's not something that happens that often. So I wouldn't be that, 
I wouldn't be banking on it if I was a Notre Dame fan. That being said, the other way to beat this man-to-man aggressive offense is a lot of shallow crosses. Uh, Notre Dame utilized these last year against Michigan. We saw Ohio State do it to Michigan a lot, and it's something Notre Dame does well. Uh, They drag Claypool uh, across the formation and and patiently get him open. Uh, Cole Komet is certainly a guy that I would expect. You get him matched up essentially with linebackers, and then they have room to run. Uh, So that is certainly something that I would look for Notre Dame to try to exploit. I expect Chip Long and and Don Brown. I think that's going to be a chess match with multiple adjustments made throughout the game. And then you get to the head coach. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think we're at a point in each of their careers where I am taking Brian Kelly uh, over Jim Harbaugh in in a game management type situation. Now, some of the stats I think are way overblown. Obviously, you know, the Jim Harbaugh one and whatever against ranked teams, blah, blah, blah. Brian Kelly's not great against ranked teams either. Um, and also, a lot of those Michigan stats are on the road. Michigan's last home loss wasn't, you know, it was 2017. They haven't lost at home this year and and never lost at home last season. Um, in terms of Notre Dame's ranked road wins, okay, are you ready for this? Uh, their last road ranked win was just last season against number 24 Virginia Tech. Turned out that number 24 Virginia Tech wasn't a very good team at all. So let's go back further because Virginia Tech last year, their roster makeup is nothing like this Michigan team. Uh, let's go to 2015 at uh, at number 21 Temple. I say at Temple. That was uh, that was at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia where the Eagles play. So really more of a neutral site. And again, that Temple team, despite being a good team, not on par with this Michigan team in terms of talent level. So now we're I understand with an asterisk, but we're going to cross those two games out. The last legitimate road-ranked win for Notre Dame. We just mentioned it, friends. Chris Brown, 2012, Oklahoma. It's not like Notre Dame is going out and setting the world on fire on the road against good competition. It's college football. Almost no one has much success on the road against ranked competition. It's just not how it works. It's tough to win games on the road against good teams. That's college football. So now, where are we? One of the things that Michigan has really struggled with this season has been fumbles. Fumbles, you can you can stress in coaching, you can stress trying to force fumbles. That is something that can be worked on. You can work on strips. You can be aggressive, things like that. But recovering fumbles is pretty much a 50-50 proposition. So I dove into the numbers. Michigan fumbles 2.4 times per game, which is tied for the worst in the country with Nebraska. They are tied at 129th uh, in terms of fumbles per game. Notre Dame fumbles one time per game. Uh, They are tied for 29th. Michigan, uh, of their 2.4 fumbles per game, they lose 1.3 of those. So that's 54%. So Michigan's fumble loss percentage makes sense. Um, Notre Dame has only lost 0.3 fumbles per game, so they're at 30%. So they have a quote-unquote lucky uh, streak with their own fumbles. Um, In terms of now forcing fumbles of your opponents, Notre Dame is number one in the entire country with 2.7 forced fumbles per game. They recover 48% 48% of those, so that's uh, that's you know on par with normal expectations. Michigan, 46th in the country 
with 1.3 forced fumbles per game, and they're actually recovering 77%. What did we learn? The percentages don't tell us a lot at small sample sizes, and actually in terms of Michigan uh, recovering their own fumbles and Notre Dame recovering defensive fumbles, they're both right at about 50%. So nothing crazy there. But the fact that Notre Dame is forcing the most fumbles per game in the country and Michigan is fumbling the most times in the game uh, per game in the entire country, that's got to mean something, right? Well, unfortunately, with numbers this small, you know, this... You, you, yes, Notre Dame most likely in the whole country to force. Michigan most likely in the whole country to fumble. But these are only like one or two per game. So it's very easy to go a game where there's zero. And all of a sudden that giant gap of fumbles completely goes out the window. There's a high variance on these things. So you can't, you know, part of the reason why Michigan looked so bad against Army, for example, was fumbles. It is very possible that Michigan will have zero fumbles in this game. It is very possible that Notre Dame will have two fumbles in this game. You can't predict these kind of things on a game-to-game basis, and these are the kind of reasons that despite what the two teams have looked like so far, they're probably more even than than a lot of people would think, and quite frankly, that's why Michigan is favored in this game. You know, if you just went based on Twitter and public perception over seven weeks, oh my good, Notre Dame must be favored by two scores. But that's unfortunately for Notre Dame fans just not the true story of how these seasons have gone in this one. Um, Let's think. What else do we want to talk about about this game before I get into my prediction? It's going to be a tough environment. There's no doubt about it. I think Notre Dame will benefit from the experience of going to Georgia. They're spending extra time working on the silent count, uh, trying to cut down on those false starts from the Georgia game. Um, this is fall break for Notre Dame, so they don't have to worry about school, which is certainly uh, a nice thing to just focus t- totally on football after getting uh, after getting midterms out of the way the previous week. You know, this is uh, this is gonna be close. I have been to every Notre Dame Michigan game dating back to two thousand five. Uh, I saw Notre Dame win at Michigan in 2005. I saw them get blown out in 2007. I saw them lose to Tate Forcier in 2009. The officiating that game was a joke. I saw them lose, obviously, the Gary Gray can't cover anyone in 2011. That was a tough one, to say the least. And I saw the game in 2013 where neither team was very good. There was actually there was a really bad pass interference call on Bennett Jackson in that game. Um, but either way, it's not like Notre Dame dominated that game um, the way that they did in 2009 and 2011 before eventually losing. I guess this is all a roundabout way of saying I've got some demons at Michigan Stadium. Uh, I've talked about all the things I think Notre Dame does a little bit better. Uh, I think they're going to need to get the ball uh, to Cole Komet a lot. I think Chase Claypool is going to to have a great game. Um, ultimately, I think the most important thing is whatever defensive end is lined up over Michigan's right tackle is going to have to feast. Um, that is, you know, that is a weak spot right now for Michigan and Notre Dame has elite pass rushers. They are going to have to put pressure in Shea Patterson's face and attacking that right tackle. 
I think his name is Jalen Mayfield, is going to be an important part of the game. I think Notre Dame will mostly be successful in doing that. Notre Dame loses the turnover battle. That could be pretty tough to recover from. I expect Notre, I expect Michigan to have a second half lead in this game. I expect Michigan to be leading this game 27 to 21 late in the third quarter, possibly into the fourth quarter. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think Notre Dame scores a touchdown in the fourth quarter to take a 28-27 lead. I think Jonathan Doerr tacks on a field goal late in the game to make it a four-point game. And I think the defense holds on for about 90 seconds at the end of the game. I will take the Notre Dame Fighting Irish 31-27 in the big house. Closing the book on this chapter of the Notre Dame-Michigan rivalry. Moving on to the other games this coming weekend. Uh, Number 13, Wisconsin, visits number 3, Ohio State. That Wisconsin lost Illinois, forces game day uh, to go to South Dakota State this weekend. I know they like going to new places, but you have to imagine they had their eye on Columbus for what they thought would be an undefeated top 10 matchup. You know, I think... Sometimes when you look at a major upset, you can look at it either as there's something wrong with with the team that lost or, you know, they happen to have a bad day. From what I saw, and I, I didn't watch any of the first half, really, of that Wisconsin game, but I don't think there's anything really wrong with them. I think, as I, as I said earlier, they had a bad eight minutes. Uh, I still think this Wisconsin team is going to be up to the challenge. It'll be by far Ohio State's toughest tested date. Ultimately, I think Ohio State just has too many weapons and uh, and probably can limit the Wisconsin offense somewhat. Um, but I expect this to certainly be uh, you know a relatively close game. I, I don't I could see I could see Ohio State pulling away late and winning by you know fourteen to twenty something like that. But I certainly expect this to be a competitive game uh, for a good portion of the day. Uh, that's at noon. Also at noon, number five Oklahoma goes to Kansas State. This is just another one. We're at the point in the season. I'm just going to tell you to keep an eye on certain games. And Oklahoma going to Kansas State is one I'll tell you to keep an eye on. Kansas State plays the brand of football that could keep Jalen Hurts and that Sooner offense at bay a little bit. Uh, You know, not not predicting uh, the upset there. But, you know, that's one that could be uh, all of a sudden it's late in the third quarter and it's a one-score game and it, uh, it warrants watching. Uh, 3.30, uh, another huge game. Number nine, Auburn goes to number two, LSU. LSU got through the uh, the letdown sandwich. They've got an idle week next week before facing Alabama. I think they should be locked and loaded on the Tigers in this one. We saw what happened to Bo Nix when he went to the Swamp and played against Florida. He had a tough day. I expect this day to be even tougher for him in Death Valley. In Death Valley. Uh, I'll take uh, I'll take LSU by two scores in this one. Uh, LSU wins by by fourteen, and I'll I'll follow up a little later on some of these picks uh, with the money back guarantee I'll be providing on my picks this week. Um, number six, Penn State goes to Michigan State. All right, I did some actual research here for you. I went back and looked at Penn State's performance coming off their whiteout game over the last several years. In their last five seasons, coming off the whiteout game, 
Penn State is two and three. Uh, one of those two wins came in overtime. So looking back, 2018, just last year, coming off the uh, the whiteout game, they lost to an unranked Michigan State. Sound familiar? Uh, 2017, they needed overtime to beat an unranked Minnesota. Uh, 2015, they also lost at Michigan State. And 2014, they lost to Maryland. Their only comfortable win in there uh, came in 2016. So the theme here, the trend here, Penn State coming off the high of the whiteout game uh, could certainly be in for a letdown at Michigan State, a kind of team that's going to try to muck up the game, uh, limit possessions, play tough defense. I got to tell you, I'm calling for the upset in this one. I think the Michigan State Spartans knock off undefeated Penn State, and, uh, and that's another ripple effect in college football this season. Um, also at 3.30, UConn plays UMass. I find this interesting, A, because they are two of the very worst teams in college football, both at 1 and 6, and B, they have such similar names, and just off the top of my head, there I'm sure there are others, but couldn't really think of other schools that are named this way with the U, and then the first four let letters of the state's name, UConn, UMass. If, if there's one that I'm missing that's pretty simple, you know, reach out to me, at StephenCon12 on Twitter. Um, but, yeah, so... How often are you going to have UConn and UMass, and they both stink? That's something to watch out for. Uh, and then 10.30, if you're trying to get a little weird with your Pac-12 after dark, Washington State visits number 11, Oregon, in Eugene. Oregon coming off that huge win at Washington. Washington State has been a total roller coaster this year with some great performances and some terrible performances. I'm not going to call for the upset in this one. But I'll just say it wouldn't shock me if the Cougars went in and, and gave Oregon some trouble. That being said, I'm also, they could completely lay an egg, so it's not even going to be one of my picks. I'm not telling you to go out and take the Washington State points, because I really don't know what's going to happen in this game. I just know that when you think the Pac-12 is going to zig, it often zags, and just watch out for the Cougars uh, going into Eugene in that game. Uh... And then some other games here that I don't have a lot to say about, but could be enjoyable football if you don't have a lot going on. You've got Virginia going to Louisville. You've got uh, a couple of games in the ACC that should help uh, thin out that crowded field. You've got Tulane visiting Navy and UCF going to Temple. So both of those games are, uh, are pretty important in a, in a kind of exciting American Athletic Conference right now. And then lastly, you've got Duke at North Carolina. Uh, could be pretty important for the ACC Coastal, uh, you know, divisional standings there. I know this isn't basketball, but still a rivalry. And I think we're at the point with Mac Brown and this UNC team that any game they play uh, is going to be pretty exciting television. All right, on to my picks for the week. I went 0-3 last week. I feel bad about myself. I feel bad that I'm potentially letting down you listeners that might be using my picks to try to profit. I'm 10-14 and 14 on the year. And instead of just whittling away and grinding my way back, I'm making six picks this week. And here's the thing. If you bet all six of these games the way that I am advising, and I don't go 4-2, 5-1, or 6-0, oh, so if I go 3-3 three three or worse and you show me proof that you've bet on all of these games, I will pay you $1. You're not 
you're not going to get money back guarantees from many people who are giving out picks. So I'll say it again. If you bet all six of these games and I go worse than four and two and you show me proof, I'll send you a dollar. Just show me the proof on Twitter. That's at StephenCon12 and one dollar will be coming your way. Now for the picks. We've got Kansas State plus 24 hosting Oklahoma. I think Kansas State can slow that game down. Uh, I just I think it's a spot where Oklahoma could could get caught, you know, just getting through the slog of the Big 12 schedule. This is kind of a lull. They just smacked West Virginia. Uh, you know, they played Kansas two weeks two weeks ago. They just kind of get lulled into a, a sense of maybe boredom. And I think uh, I think they have a hard time winning that game by more than three touchdowns. Kansas State plus 24. I love Northwestern. Uh, getting 10.5, hosting Iowa. Uh, I think I, I think Northwestern could cover this game with three points, possibly. I see this... I, it wouldn't shock me to see Northwestern win outright, but I certainly don't see it more than like a 17-7 game. And at 17-7, getting 10.5, you're going to cover. I like Northwestern plus 10.5. I also like LSU going... Uh, excuse me, hosting Auburn, minus 11.5. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't win this game by two scores uh, and two scores being touchdowns with extra points. So LSU is going to win by 14, 11 and a half. Good enough for me. I don't really have a hot take here. Um, I'm just going to keep on going with the picks. And the hottest pick of all, Michigan State plus seven versus Penn State. If you want to get crazy, sprinkle a little on the money line. Hey, I, whatever you want to do. You know, sometimes I put a little maple syrup in my hair. What do you think keeps it up, slick? Michigan State plus seven, hosting Penn State. You can take that one to the bank. Notre Dame going to Ann Arbor, getting a point and a half. I think they should probably be giving a point and a half. The way I see it, that's a free three points. Take the Irish, uh, take the one and a half. And even if something horrible happens and my heart is ripped out of my chest and Michigan wins by one, you still win your bet. So that's cool for you. Still stinks for me. Lastly, I like Arizona State giving three and a half at UCLA. This is the one that I'm kind of most afraid of because I say it, I say it, it seems a little bit like a trap, but Arizona State is significantly better than UCLA. When I see that at sign, uh, that means they're going on the road, I'm not afraid of playing at UCLA. I don't think there's any kind of home field advantage there. Uh, so I, I think uh, Herm Edwards gets the guys going. They play to win the game. And, it, and, and as he people often cut off the clip when he's saying you play to win the game. But if you actually, the original uncut version, he says you play to win the game by four or more points. And that's what Arizona State's going to do in this one. Uh, they're going to they're gonna win that game at least by a touchdown, maybe 10 points. And, uh, and Arizona State covers the three and a half. So all six, I'll run them down one more time. Kansas State plus 24. Northwestern plus 10 and a half. LSU minus 11.5, Michigan State plus 7, Notre Dame plus 1.5, and, and Arizona State minus 3.5. You can take it to the bank. That's a money-back guarantee. That's about it. Um, I, I don't know if you can notice, because I haven't listened back yet, but m magic of uh, podcast making here, I'm not going to tell you when, but sometime during this recording, I left to go see Zombieland 2. Uh, and, and came back and finished the recording. So in between the time I started talking to you and right now, I have seen Zombieland 2, and I got to tell you, 
if you liked Zombieland 1, you're going to like Zombieland 2. It's, it's, you know, a lot of the same kind of stuff going on, but there's some fresh material in there. There's some good jokes. Uh, and if you're a Zombieland fan, I would be very surprised if you didn't get quite a bit of enjoyment out of that film. All right, folks. I am uh, I'm headed off to Ann Arbor. Wish me luck. Enjoy the college football weekend and go Irish. That concludes the Scoop and Score podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul.